Can I think people are afraid to acknowledge mistakes because they're uh, afraid uh, that if they acknowledge any weak, any one brick, the entire edifice will crumble, and and that is not necessarily the case. Sometimes you need to repoint a beautiful brick house and 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 acknowledge that there are some 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 bad bricks in there, and and that doesn't mean that the entire edifice is is bad. Yeah. And, that's not a perfect analogy, but welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got an author who I'm really excited to have on. I've been reading his books for a long time. John Pollock, thanks for coming on the show. Jess, thanks for having me. So I want to hear a little bit about the cork boat and, and the pun also rises, but my my book that you've earned, earned my undying love is Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovation, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. And wh- I mean, the way this show happened was I was once again recommending the book to a CEO and I was saying like, hey, you know, the best thing I think that's ever been written about analogies, this former White House speechwriter wrote this book. You've got to get it. I was like, I got to see if he'll just come on the show. So I was very happy when you said you had time to come on the show. Well, thank you. So let's give people just the quick, you know, the, the one minute overview on on your professional career. And then I want to jump into some of these concepts. Uh, sure. So I, I came out of a background in in journalism. I, I, I covered exciting things at the beginning, like the Sewer Commission and suburban Connecticut. I decided I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and bought a one-way ticket to Spain and spent a few years freelancing there and got hired by the Associated Press. Came back to the States, got involved in political campaigns, bounced around a bit and ended up uh, deciding I wanted to be a, a presidential speech, went to Washington, pitched myself as a speech writer, and people said, "But you haven't rich, written any speeches." And I, I said, "Well, I I know the news business, uh, and I know campaigns. This is the perfect blend." And they'd give me a, a speech to write, and lo and behold, I could write speeches. And it took me a few years, but I, I worked on the Hill first, and then got a job at the White House as a as a speech writer for President Clinton. And then after that, I've worked as a communications consultant, helping people articulate their ideas in, in more compelling ways. Well, I think, by the way, congratulations on all the success. I think one of the things that I really, the reason I go back to Shortcut year after year and, and reread it and, and pull it back up on my Audible to listen to is it analogy has been so helpful to me in my career. Like I, I've not really made money by being good at stuff. I've been made, I've made money by being the glue between somebody who's good at stuff and the money, (laughs) you know, like that, that's my oversimplification. And I mean, for you, what, what was it about the subject that, that you were drawn to initially? What was it about analogy that captured my uh, attention? Well, I've always enjoyed using analogies. I've, I've found them to be a really fun, powerful 
expressive way of interpreting the world and, and, and connecting with, with people because the right analogy really can be so useful in, in helping people understand what you're trying to say. And I was working on my first book, excuse me, my first book on language, which is The, the Pun Also Rises. And I was in the great reading room at the New York Public Library, which is a one of the great public spaces in America. And if that doesn't inspire you to think big in that room, nothing will. And I was at the copy machine copying some articles and I, I came up relating to, to the history of puns and I came across this article on an analogy. I thought, oh, analogy, that, that's a good idea for a book. I copied it and I stuck it in a folder. And, and a couple of years later, I returned to it and, and, and dug in to, with the idea of saying, exploring why are analogies so persuasive. And, and in my research, I realized they were also incredible as catalysts uh, for innovation. And so the work uh, of, of writing the book became a much bigger project for me and, and, a, and w- in which I learned a great deal. And, and that's how Shortcut came to be. Well, to me, analogy is fascinating because so, so much of my career has been feeding my, fal- my family by persuasion, whether it's persuading you know, somebody to do a deal with their investment fund, persuading investors that they can trust us, you know, on the consulting side, persuading CEOs to, to trust themselves and do what they think they should do, you know, and I also hate conflict. And so often when, when something is coming towards friction, a friction point, I've been able to reframe a situation with an analogy that, avoid, that, that almost like structurally deflates the argument, right? And it's been like, made made life more personally comfortable for me. It it is to the point, you know, I'll be married for 20 years here at the end of the month. And and my, there is like a running joke at our house. Like my wife has made a limit of like, I'm only allowed three analogies. Like, because when I explain things, I like, analogy has just been so effective to me that I want the perfect one. So I'll, I'll be explaining something and I'll give this analogy. I'm like, actually, you know, what's an even better analogy. Actually, you know, what's an even better analogy than that. And so it is, you know, my business partners, my wife, people tease me about it. But again, the the kind of things that you talk about in the book of like, just the drastic shifts in having humans come to a new conclusion because an effective analogy was used has really has really borne out for me. And so I just find yourself the, the deepest thinking, the most sophisticated stuff written on it that I've ever come across, at least. So can you let, let's go for a simple one. Can you tell the cork, the cork boat story on how you got your job at, the, at White House speech trading? Uh, sure, sure. So I had, as I had mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, I had worked I had worked on Capitol Hill as a speechwriter, and it was great experience. It's uh, when you're writing for a member of Congress, even even a member of leadership, as I was, it's very Darwinian who gets quoted in the in the press. And and if you don't say something that's pithy, you're 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 going to get beat out by somebody who does. I mean, there's literally 400, 500 people all competing to to to, to get quoted, and so that really honed my skills. And so I, I'd really learned a lot and and become an experienced uh, speechwriter. But at, at the moment. Uh, I was. I had actually left the hill. I was unemployed. I was uns- uncertain what I was going to be doing. What, where was my life going? And 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 I'm. I had just returned from a, a, a long trip to Turkey and and former Soviet Georgia in the Caucasus, and I, I had the, 
I was sitting in my apartment, my studio apartment in DuPont Circle, and the phone rings and and it's the White House. Would I come in that day for an interview? And I said, would tomorrow morning be a possibility? And, and they had my resume on file and, and an opening had come up for the president. And the next morning I found myself shaven in a suit and tie on the edge of this old couch in, in the basement of the West Wing interviewing with the chief speechwriter. And I'm nervous. It's my last best shot at, at my dream. And, and I'm watching him read my resume and, and, and his, he gets this frown on his face and he says, well, I, I know you can write, but what's this about cork boat. You've got a lot of other projects going on. And I had put it down on, on my resume on the last line in the other category is I, I was currently building the world's first cork boat. And I explained that, that I had been saving corks since I was six years old. And I, my plan was to assemble them into a Viking ship and, and take them on an epic voyage through French wine country. And as I explained this to him, I could see that he thought, uh-oh, you know, we've got a weirdo here. I, I, I can't give this guy a job. I could see my whole opportunity slipping away. The interview had taken a, a bad turn. And 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 for like a microsecond, I froze. And then out of nowhere, and I don't know where it, where it came from, an analogy popped into my head. And I said, sir, building a cork boat and writing a good speech are, are, are a lot alike. Essentially the same thing. And he's he pushed his glasses up to the top of his head and he, and he paused. And I said, well, in both cases, you take a jumble of small things, either corks or words. And if you assemble them into just the right order, they'll take you on an amazing journey. And then I just shut up. And 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 this slowly, this big grin spread across his face. He got the analogy and I got the job. <laughs> Such a great story. Well, and, and to this day, I don't know where that analogy had come from, came from. It just it came out of the ether all, when I needed it. And sometimes that's the way uh, good analogies work. Well, and I think one of the things that I enjoy about your book, too, is that you're like you're you make the point so clearly about the power of analogy. You even bring up when it works, even though we wish it wouldn't like, you know, the the baseball references and the three strikes laws in, in California and how, you know, that this idea of fairness in baseball and and it getting compared to three strikes you're out unfortunately has a whole bunch of people in prison that you know on the surface in any other reasonable situation probably wouldn't be in prison for the rest of their life but that analogy took so took so well that lawmakers put it into into uh you know permanent state there can you talk just a little bit about the genesis of of how that came about uh, Asked, the three strikes law. The, the three strikes and you're out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How that came to be and how that analogy missed millions of people to a terrible place. Uh, yes. So in 1992, there was a, a, a terrible robbery gone wrong in which a, a young woman was was shot and killed. And when the police closed in on 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 the killers, one died in the gunfight and and one was arrested and he was a convicted felon and and the father of the victim couldn't bring back his daughter but he made it his life's work to uh see that other people didn't suffer the same fate and and he engaged the legislature to uh pass stiffer you know, automatic penalties for for repeat offenders and the effort stalled out in the legislature so he launched a ballot initiative and it was called three strikes and you're out and it was as it says if 
if you get a third strike, you, you know, it's you go away forever. And it, that was a very appealing analogy because baseball is fair. And 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 we teach our children, you know, we give them a first chance and the second chance is, OK, now you've learned your lesson. The third chance, no, you, you, you pay a penalty for that. And it was passed overwhelmingly by the public in a, in a ballot initiative. And the, the only problem was, is that it was a... Uh, to use another analogy, one size fits all. In in baseball, actually, the third strike is qualitatively different than the first two. You could keep like, you know hitting foul balls. If you get a piece of the ball and nobody catches the, the pop up, you keep going. But in this case, people were being put away because their third strike was stealing a piece of pizza or, or breaking into a car to, to grab change out of a cup holder. And as a result, you had just hundreds of thousands of people filling up the prisons, some of whom were a danger to society and many, probably a majority, were not. And that that cost to the taxpayers became just literally billions of dollars because about half the states followed suit with three strikes and you're out. And it, it took many years and, and eventually the voters, after two tries, the two ballot initiatives re- reformed three strikes and you're out and recognizing that that wasn't such a useful analogy and nor was it a, a, a just or effective public policy. And one has to ask yourself, why should baseball, a sport, a game, be the model for criminal justice? And, and if you ask it that way, it's, it's really not a great model. And, and, but the, the analogy is very seductive. And, 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 and what, if you look at, at misleading analogies, take the domino theory, for example, that, that led the United States in, into decades of war in, in Vietnam. That was a very beguiling analogy. But of course, countries aren't dominoes. Uh, they have different. They have different leaders. They have different cultures. They have different languages. They have different economies. And and indeed, the United States lost the war in Vietnam on television. And did the other neighboring countries topple like dominoes to communism? No, they didn't because they're not dominoes. But the analogy was appealing. So the the lesson here is that that an analogy is a spring loaded argument, and and it can. They can be right and they can be wrong. It's our job as as consumers, as as citizens, to ask ourselves what is true about this analogy and and how could what is not true about this analogy and how it could be misleading how it could be misleading us to to make some less than optimal decisions. Yeah. Well, let's hear some more White House stories. Tell us some more about analogies you put in speeches or just some of your time there. Well. I, I'll tell you a good analogy uh, story from the White House. It was the last speech that President Clinton was going to give in the East Room, and he was declaring a series of national monuments. And one of one of them, as part of this, they, they were protecting some still pristine lands along the Lewis and Clark voyage west, voyage of exploration. And they were, I was in a meeting with the communications director and the advanced people, all the policy people, uh, as we did before big speeches, to talk through the speech, what are our goals, what are we going to say, what, 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 what's the back of policy. And, and somebody raised this thorny issue that they, they were awarding an honorary captainship to York, who had been Clark's slave on the expedition. And, and Clark had promised him if, if he came on the expedition, that he would set him free at the end of it. And Clark reneged on the deal. And when he came back, he did not free York. And the, the question was, well, you know, how do we celebrate Lewis and Clark and honor York 
and isn't that a contradiction? And I, and I remember sitting, listening in that meeting as people talked about this. And then I, this analogy came to mind. And I said, well, just as America has grown geographically, so too have we grown as a democracy in our understanding of democracy. And, and the room, somebody started applauding and then the whole room started applauding. And it was just a meeting and it was, it was, and it, 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 it an analogy is a comparison. If you can make an analogy between uh, a, a, a journey of physical growth, you can uh, make the uh, a parallel argue, argument of, of intellectual democratic growth as a nation. And, and one of the strengths of America is its capacity to adapt and grow. I mean, that's why, I mean, we've seen it under strain lately, but but it, it's under strain lately because it's adapting and growing. And, and that's that kind of analogy can be very helpful in, 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 in explaining things to people. And, and I ended up writing it into the speech in a, a little greater eloquence uh, than that. And, and it went well. And, and that was a very satisfying analogy. It wasn't necessarily a pithy analogy, but it was a, a useful one in helping people see parallels between two very different things. You know, it's interesting. That's, that one is actually very relevant today with the news cycle and, and everything. And I think for me, what I like about that one is I do feel like it seems like there's a lot today out there in the media or social media about like, if someone made some mistake that that cancels every other good thing that they did in life, you know, and like, you know, this idea of like, can't we recognize that Lewis and Clark did some great things and made some mistakes? Like, is that, is that beyond us? Like, do they need to be one or the other? You know, like, you know, my own grandparents are great people. I look up to them and they're also humans and made mistakes. Like, do we not have yes. the intellectual power to acknowledge both those things? Right. Yes. And, 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 and we, I think that one can, I think people are afraid to acknowledge mistakes because they're uh, afraid uh, that if they acknowledge any weak, any one brick, that the entire edifice will crumble. And, and that is not necessarily the case. Sometimes you need to, to repoint a beautiful brick house and, and, and acknowledge that there are some 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 bad bricks in there and and that doesn't mean that the entire edifice is is bad yeah. and that's not a perfect analogy but uh, <laughs> we'll go with it that's what, um, that's what popped into my mind yeah well tell us tell us more about this experience like what kind of pressure did you feel where you're writing the words the president of the united states is going to say i felt a lot of pressure <laughs> I felt a lot of pressure. I I, I will say that that that, that I, I was one of six uh, on a team, and and you're assigned primary responsibility for a given speech, and there will always be other eyes on that speech too, because it's always helpful to have a different perspective, and, and it goes through an editing process informally and formally, and then it, it, you have to run the traps with the policy people and the political people, and and, and there are a lot of there are a lot of people and a lot of cooks in the kitchen uh, on those, and 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 I think the biggest takeaway from from that process is on on balance it's very helpful, but everybody wants to get their idea or their words or their program into the president's speeches. And it's the job of a good, and I say that a good a good speech is like a, a racehorse. It should it should move, and it's the job of the speech writer to to keep it from becoming a pack mule. And, and that's you got to just know whose words you can cut away and 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 slap the horse's rump and keep it running. How much of the president's involvement is there in a speech where oh, he looks at it later I, and I goes, "I don't want it to be like that," or 
Well, I, I can only speak to President Clinton because that's the president for whom I worked, but he was involved in every speech. He really uh, cared about the, the substance and the style, and you met with him for every, for every speech. Now, on a, on a shorter, less important speech, you might meet for five, 10 minutes just to get final input or, or, or feedback. Some, in some cases, you might meet for longer, and, and sometimes that meeting would be in the Oval Office, and sometimes it would be elsewhere. But it, it was a really great experience, and I remember, I mean, within a week of getting the job, I, there I was standing in front of his desk answering questions, uh, and, and there's the President of the United States, there's the Resolute Desk, and, and it's, it's re- it was a really great honor. I mean, that's what I felt. I felt I was really fortunate to be there. And because there are six speechwriters, you would rotate on speeches. Uh, and so you always had time to prepare. As, as, as Mark Twain once said, it takes three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. And, and, and while we didn't have three weeks, you, you might have uh, a day of downtime after you finish something before starting the next one. And I really put that time to work going through the White House and, and getting to know other people and other people's roles. And, and for example... I, I got to meet the calligraphers and the calligraphers do all the, the beautiful ceremonial documents and, 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 and proclamations. I mean, technology has, has obviously allowed computers to do a lot of that, but, but they still have calligraphers for, for, because there's a tactile difference in it and it's, and it's tradition or talking with the, the gardeners and the national park people whose job it is to tend to the fires in the fireplace in the Roosevelt room and, there are the battle flags with uh, the, the the battle flags from the, the great battles Antietam and Iwo Jima and and the uh, and and the Teddy Roosevelt's Nobel Prize on the mantle and there's just a great textural quality to working there if you're attuned to it and appreciate that. I, I remember standing in in one of the formal rooms of the White House waiting for President and there was just me and 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 another policy person who was checking their texts or something like that. And, and I, I looked out the window and there was a squirrel scampering across the, the, the porch. And I just thought, God, the squirrel comes and goes. He doesn't know it's the White House. He's just looking for acorns. And isn't that amazing? We're just all part of this in a different way. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, politics has become more polarizing and people probably either have very strong a lot of people probably have strong feelings one way or, or another about President Clinton. But a couple of things, you know, speaking about persuasiveness that are interesting about him to me is a mentor of mine who was the chief of staff for a Republican governor when Clinton was a governor. They they switched chief of staff for three weeks. They did an exchange. So he was president, you know, he was Governor Clinton's chief of staff for three weeks, which is funny because he was a Republican. And mm-hmm. he just had nothing but good things to say about Bill and just like like from a personal perspective and just like such a master of, of understanding humans and working with humans. And another one, there's a, there's a spy book writer named Vince Flynn wrote kind of a special op series about a guy named Mitch Rapp and very, very Republican guy. Right. And found out that Clinton read his books and this is after he's out of office. I think George, I think Bush two was in, and uh, something was happening in New York. Anyways, he realized it was Clinton on the street getting ready to get in a limo. So he went over to the Secret Service guys and said, hey, I'm Vince Flynn. I know the president reads my books. So I was wondering if he wanted to talk. And he gets back out of the limo, apparently, and comes and, like, welcomes and has all the all the Secret Service guys come around. Guys, this is Vince Flynn. He's like, we read every one of your books, and then we all discuss it. And, and Vince Flynn said, like, 
I was almost convinced to become a Democrat just for that interaction of spending time with President Clinton and just, you know, world-class persuasion and, and magnetism. Any thoughts on that? Well, because Bill Clinton sees people as people. He doesn't see them as Democrats or as Republicans or black or white. He just sees them as people. Now, he might understand, you know, biases or, or cultural differences or religious differences. It's, it's not that he's blind to that, but he 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 sees people as individuals and and, and, and he connects and, and it's and it's legitimate and it's, it's, it's real it's it's a it's a human connection and and, and i think that it was uh former speaker boehner who just whose book just came out last week uh, who said we were wrong to impeach uh president clinton that that was a a, a political stunt and 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 we we shouldn't have done it and i i think that obviously the reputations of presidents come and go they they all have their 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 weaknesses and and have made their share of mistakes and i think the president clinton would certainly admit he's made you know his share of mistakes but i think that if if america always did as well as it did under bill clinton we would be in great shape and and as he's for for your 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 note that republicans have found themselves liking the democratic president he said if you want to live like a republican vote democrat <laughs> Too funny. Well, this is not where I was expecting to go with the interview, but I am finding it really fascinating. Do you have any stories that you remember from your time in the White House about him seeing people as people or connecting? So the stories from my time in the White House about? About President Clinton connecting with people and seeing people as people. Any personal stories that you remember? Well, I'd have to think on that. I, 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 I guess I was surprised how many people he knew well and, and that, for example, I come from Michigan and I had worked on campaigns in Michigan. And, and one of the people that I had come to know through those campaigns was a woman named uh, Millie Jeffrey, who had been, a, she was all of maybe five feet tall, you know, thin as a nail and, and, and tough as one too. And, and she had been a longtime activist and she had been an advisor to Kennedy informally and, 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 and from there on. And, and she was the, she was, when I was there, was named as a, a recipient of the Medal of Freedom, which is one of the highest honors one can receive as an American. And she came to the White House and I got to write the remarks on her. And, and, and what, what was amazing was, was President Clinton's ability to take great remarks and, and ad lib on them, add something else, because he knew the person that would, that would you know, make those remarks even more personal. And I, I can't remember what he did particularly on hers, but, but it was amazing to watch someone so gifted as a politician. I think one of the things that made him great is, is that he didn't make it about him. He always made it about the other person through the stories he told, through the, 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 the people he chose to recognize and put a spotlight on that might not have been famous. They were behind the scenes or they were a citizen who did extraordinary things. And, and it, it's that capacity to highlight others that is very rare among politicians because there's so many politicians are there. There are many fine ones who are devoted public servants. And, and I think we could all agree, Democrat, Republican, there are, are, are many on both sides of the aisle who are in politics because they have egos that are like coal furnaces that can never be full enough of uh, the flames of attention. And and the, the truly great ones are, are those who, who put the light on others. 
those uh, that they are elected to serve. I think that's my favorite analogy of, of the uh, interview here about the culverts that can't be filled. Well, l- let's go back to analogies. In your mind, what what are the elements of an effective analogy? Like, you know, for my business, if I'm trying to create a new product or our investment fund, we're trying to frame our investment differently and we're trying to analyze, is this analogy as strong as we think it is? Or as we're trying to select an analogy in our materials, what are, what are some, let's give us some masterclass on analogy selection. Okay, so, so what I would say is there's two things. There, there's what I would call the, 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 the five, you know, let me start out by saying if you practice, analogies are like anything else. If you practice, you'll get better. And so uh, the first thing uh, to do if you want to become better at analogy is, is hone your analogical instinct. And, and, and that means you need to start looking out for analogies. And I think a lot of people get confused and think, well, wait, is this a metaphor? Is this a simile? Is this an analogy? And, and think of uh, analogy as a very large golf umbrella and all these others fall underneath that umbrella. And parables, fables, uh, something like, you know, don't cry wolf. It comes from the boy who cried wolf, an Aesop's fable. And it's a, a very, if you think about it, quite a complex idea that if you if you make false claims too many times, people won't believe you when you make a true claim. And and similarly, sour grapes. It was it was that was an Aesop's fable about the the, the fox who couldn't reach the grapes on the arbor and said, well, they're sour anyways. And so the, distilling these ideas into into phrases is something that we all take for granted, but we might not recognize those as analogies. So the first thing is to say analogies are are like guests arriving in a Halloween costume. They come wearing many disguises. So just start paying attention to all the forms that they can come in. And and the the second thing that's important to do is, is challenge the analogies that you encounter. And and they can sound great, three strikes and you're out, the domino theory. But ask yourself, what about this analogy isn't true? And often those can be very revealing. And you might decide at the end of picking it apart and deconstructing an analogy that, well, the things that are similar are, are more relevant than the things that are dissimilar. And so I'm going to dismiss those things that are dissimilar and accept the the analogy as it was presented or you might say wait a second that that's that sounds appealing but it's not because for whatever reason depending on the analogy and so so you really have to to look out for the analogy challenge the analogy and then if you're really creative and 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 want to use them as a problem solver try on multiple analogies you might say well that analogy is useful in in shedding light in in a certain way but uh how about this analogy? It might shed, you know, reveal insights uh, in another way. And I am trying to remember the scientists, but both, I think it was Einstein, Einstein was one of them. And, and I think it was Bohr, I think, was the other, I believe. And they were each during the same year writing papers. One was explaining light as a, as a, as a wave. And then another one was describing light as particles. And those can be, those descriptions are both true, but they reveal different things about the properties of light. And, and Einstein, by the way, was a huge proponent and user of analogy as the, as a creative engine for revealing uh, insights about uh, life in the universe. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, his thought experiments and, and the analogies that he would use there are those kind of what you're referring to, or are there other ones? 
Yeah, well, I, I'm thinking may, what comes to mind uh, initially is how he he imagined himself on a train, you know, speeding alongside a, a, a beam of light, and 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 how he takes that train all the way to the to the station of relativity, and and it was really important because he was. He, the amazing thing is he, he he thought his way to new truths through analogy. And just as Edison made invention after invention through analogy, and Gutenberg uh, invented the printing press through analogy, and Steve Jobs developed the Mac through an analogy, and not just the the, 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 the desktop as a, as a means of communication and, and persuasion for, for uh, the masses, enabling them to use the computer, but he envisioned that computer as a bicycle for the mind that could multiply and, and leverage the intellectual capacity of creative people by giving them a tool. It was a it was a bicycle that could take them different intellectual directions. And you know, indeed it did. So looking for the unexpected analogy can really help us uh, frame how we approach different challenges and, and, and find different solutions. Because if you just think about things the same way all the time, well then you're gonna be stuck. You're gonna be stuck. You know, as you say that what comes to mind for me is thinking about thinking about analogies as a lever to get a job done for us, you know? And the thought to me is like all of these different comparisons, how we can take something that's already anchored in the mind of the person we're influencing or communicating with and, and kind of have that big leverage by comparing it to it and having it. I think my favorite word you've used this whole time is framing. We get to, we get to reframe an issue by something that already exists in their mind. Right. Yeah, it's it's there's uh, and you need to explain one of the things that analogies do is they explain something new in terms that are already familiar and relatable to the listener. And so if you're trying to use analogies to persuade an audience, you need to think about where are they coming from? What what's going to what are the terms that they're going to relate to? What's going to emo- resonate emotionally uh, with them? If it's a, a religious off- audience, perhaps holy scripture uh, would be because all the holy books of all the major religions are filled with analogy. Uh, they're filled with parable. They're filled with the models because analogies are models that we are uh, expected to apply to modern circumstances. I mean, the, the, the Ten Commandments are, that's a model. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, that also, by reasonable measure, should you know apply to, at the office Christmas party where you should not be hitting on the, the boss's girlfriend. It, it, it's... it's for that multiple reasons. That, so that, that's just, uh, we are surrounded by analogies. We use them all the time. We cannot think without them. But in, in, the, in the Eastern tradition of mindfulness, becoming aware of our thoughts and aware of how we are thinking is an, can be an incredibly powerful and revealing approach to greater clarity and and being in this context of analogy, becoming aware of all the analogies that are are framing our decisions and and pushing our emotional buttons can can be incredibly liberating as, as a creative uh, catalyst. Yeah, no kidding. As we're sitting here, I'm thinking about new slides I need to put in our investment pitch deck <laughs> because I was reworking it the other day with one of our clients and. He was he was kind of like, well, you jumped right into it. You need to you need to like work me up to the point where I want to hear about it. And I was using this example that so many of our other investors are high income earners, but they feel like they're on a never ending hamster wheel. And so they're looking for some passive income. And 
I just realized like that I also need to keep going with that of like so many of them then go buy a rental property and then being a landlord just feels like another hamster wheel of, you know, the toilets and the trash and the tenant problems. And so then they switch to property managers and it, it feels like, oh, I finally get got off the hamster wheel. The property manager is going to do everything. But then inevitably you still got to do the taxes and there's the something with the state and the then the property manager quits or you realize they're dropping the ball and you have to hire a new one. And it's just it's just less of a hamster wheel. And really what they want is they want a never ending ATM machine. They don't want to do any work. They want to they want to just hand over their money and just cash the check. They don't want to do anything but cash the check. They just want an ATM machine that doesn't run out of <laughs> passive income. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to get like icons and put those in our pitch deck now. Well, there's no my my wife works for Carhartt and and one of their motto, the, the the workwear company and one of their mottos is work is the thing and you got to do the work whether you're whether you're writing a book and, and and doing the research or you're 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 running property you you got to do the work and there's you can you can I guess you could layer up everyone else to do the work but but then that that costs management and and money and 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 time and you you got to do the work. <laughs> well, listen, one of my I know we're kind of winding down here. One of my questions that I think is interesting to me at least is these books you write and giving TEDx speeches and writing presidential speeches, how does it apply to what you do now for work? How, how does writing president, how do, how does my experience writing presidential speeches apply to, to what I do now? Is that what you're asking? Well, and, um, and the books and all of it, how, how has all of this career experience helped you and what you do now? Well, uh, you know, people sometimes uh, listen, I, I, I make my living as a writer and a thinker and I, and I help people Leaders in a, in a wide range of industries and philanthropies express their ideas in, in more compelling ways, and so I think that one of one of the things that I've discovered is that people often uh, think of writing as the frosting on the cake, and you know they they they, they say I've got a cake frost and make it sound good. And what I think that that some fail to realize, not all, some is that that. Writing is thinking, and 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 if you cannot articulate an idea, the idea does not fully exist. And so, the expression of an idea is not the afterthought; it is it is it is the the idea. And one of the things that I've found is that some of the 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 most one of the busiest the the, the most effective our 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 leaders are are those who invest in, in in a collaborative process with me whether that was Paul Allen or 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 or, or Bill Clinton they, they they take the time to it might be a short amount of time but they take the time to connect communicate knock the ideas around to make sure that they're articulated in the best possible way and 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 that that's and i will say if 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 the president of the United States has time to meet with me, then 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 a CEO of a company should, because the CEO of the company is not necessarily uh, busier than the president of the United States. And so, I think that circling back to your question is that is that I'm endlessly fascinated by how many smart people there are in this world doing incredibly interesting and important, meaningful work, whether that's in 
science or in commerce or in the arts or in public policy. And 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 I'm really gung-ho on helping them articulate their ideas through language and and in some cases visual language uh, that, that connects with the greatest number of people and, and motivates them to, to, to help solve problems. And so what I did as a speechwriter was very specific and high profile in some ways, but in essence, it's it's the same work that I do now is, is how do we try and make this world a little bit better? One day, one project, one endeavor at a time uh, by communicating what we're trying to do in a way that resonates with the audience we're trying to reach and engage them in the, in the endeavor too, or at least try and neutralize them so they don't, they don't stop us and stop us. I love it. Well, listen, I appreciate making time for this. Obviously, I think everybody should go to johndpollock.com and buy their own copies of your books or do you like me and go to Audible and get it. And and this is really fun. I, I, I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you very much. I I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I'm, I'm really happy to, it, it's great to have a conversation with you because you ask really good questions and you get me thinking about what is it I'm doing with my life? Because uh, we get caught up in the day-to-day of our work sometimes, and it's good to, to, to be forced to step back and, and take a little longer look at what are the, the, the through lines? What are the themes? And, and how can we stay focused on the, the important stuff? That's great. Bye, everyone.